Hi, my name is Paul Shangwen. I'm the founder of a company called WildWeb. Having had the good fortune of working with an amazing client base of adventurous safari operators across southern and eastern Africa, I invite you to join me as I chat to them about their love for the people, places and wildlife of Africa. This week I chat to Steve Edwards of Masango Safari Camp on Lake Kariba, Zimbabwe. Steve is recognized as one of the top safari guides in Africa and has a wealth of experience and knowledge on the African bushveld. At a very young age, Steve got into the then known Rhodesian National Parks, where he honed his skills in every corner of Zimbabwe. In 1990, Steve achieved his dream of acquiring a small island on the lake shore of Kariba. He now lives with his wife, Wendy, and the team at Masango Safari Lodge. I hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> Good morning, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me on my third podcast. And um, it's fantastic to have you here talking to me uh, from the shores of Lake Kariba. How's it going there, Steve? Good morning, Paul. Yeah, all very, very well. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for, for phoning and considering us. I, uh, I've taken the opportunity to take the pontoon and park up the creek, the creek that I've taken you up before. Um, and I've parked in the months some hippos and fishy girls calling. So I thought I'd I mean, I'm in seventh heaven here. I'm just sort of setting the tone. Amazing. Uh, I, I was, you know, before this, uh, we, we chatted about a week ago, and the reason why I called was I, could, I couldn't manage, well, I couldn't imagine a better place um, to be than sort of on the lake shore and as far away from these uh, these worldly problems of uh, COVID nineteen. Um, I know they've all terribly affected us uh, from uh, the business that we do in tourism, but um, I'm sure you're enjoying the lake as you always do. Um, I also know that the there's been really uh, interesting um, stories coming out of the Zambezi and the Victoria Falls. Um, there's a spark and flow that hasn't been seen. Some people are saying this is the highest waters in the last 20 years, but uh, – yeah, just on, on, from your perspective, uh, what do you think of the falls, the Zambezi, and how it's going to affect Lake Kariba? Paul, that's an interesting subject, actually. Um, I've been inundated of late with a lot of queries. Having lived on the lake a long, long time, people are getting to me and asking me what I thought was going to happen and how much the lake is risen and what percentage capacity is it and so on. And um, I'm very fortunate that I am on the mailing list uh, from the Namibian flood warning group. And so I get an email every day with the graphs showing the flow of water with uh, satellite photographs and everything. And so it's quite astounding. Um, yes, Big Falls is pounding at the moment. All my friends in Big Falls tell me that the town is shaky, literally, <laughs> um, vibration. And, and, and the falls are really pumping and the spray can be seen from 40 kilometers away on the main road. So that's quite something. But not to sort of prick the bubble, um, we've had much greater floods in the past. And although this has been a remarkable flood, it has been surpassed in the past many, many times. It's just that the river hasn't flowed strongly for about 10 years. And so that's why people are all excited. However, if you look at the water that is stored in those huge sponges in Angola and up in the Barotsi floodplains in Zambia, and in fact, just below Katima Malilo in the Caprivi, um, we're expecting another spike, another big flood to hit Victoria Falls. But I don't think it'll go anywhere near the records, but it still will be a, a phenomenal sight. And, of course, it does have a knock-on effect here on the lake. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, uh, are you seeing the water sort of rise on the lake at all at the moment? Absolutely. It's almost right before your eyes. In the last 
months. Uh, the lake has risen over two meters already. Gee, God. And yeah, it, it is phenomenal. What I want to bring to your attention, though, uh, uh, this is the most pertinent point, is that the lake surface area is five and a half thousand square kilometers. And if you can extrapolate that with a two meter rise, Imagine the volume of water that's actually coming into the lake. Absolutely unbelievable and phenomenal. Unbelievable. And then, I mean, uh, would I be correct in saying that I'm, I'm normal, I'm normally used to seeing the peak of the falls a little later on in the year. Uh, so, so would it be fair to say that we can expect it to rise more? Yes. There's going to be the double peak and, um, April, May, is the normal traditional uh, flood peak in Victoria Falls. And it takes them about two months to reach the lake. Wow. So we will have a lake rise, a phenomenal rise um, in the next two months or so. Uh, we're expecting a minimum of a five-meter rise. So it's gone up about two meters now. <clears throat> I'm expecting, excuse me, another five meters at least. The, the, the knock-on effect of that, in fact, is that we lose this vast grassland that has established itself on the lake shore. And mm. the lake has receded over the last decade. Right. So there are huge grasslands. Is that bream oh, season? The, grazers, the grazers, of course, just love it all. I mean, all our impala and, and zebra and waterbuck and so on, and the elephants too, and the buffalo. Right. Do do so well, and then the reverse happens. It's an ironic uh, twist of nature, fate that when the lake comes up, you've got ample water. You'd think more water is great for the animals, but in fact, it inundates the grass. It's a special kind of grass, very yeah. highly productive grass called panicum or torpedo grass. It covers that up, and then the grazers have to then fend for themselves. Right. Less grass, which is in the bush. And that, how does it affect the bream populations? Ah, <laughs> that's another thing within our element of the fishing at the moment. So I'm sure. The total lockdown where everybody's pulling their hair out, we're actually, dare I say it, we're enjoying it, um, catching loads of fish to feed our staff and to feed ourselves. Lovely. The bream go into the shallows to eat this torpedo grass. As I mentioned earlier, it's mm. a very nutritious grass, very productive. And so not only is it for the, the grazers, but it's there for the fish as well. And then they, they love it. And yeah. Great fishing, my friend. Hurry up and come. <laughs> I can only imagine, eh? Oh, I'm envious, man. <laughs> Steve, and then the damn wall. I mean, uh, what's going on on that end? Uh, is it is it all okay, that side? Yeah, you know, there's always this bar talk about the damn wall imminent collapse and cracked and all this nonsense. Mm. Let me tell you that years from the 50s knew what they were doing. Yeah. However, below the dam wall, there's a huge, huge hole that's been gouged out by the pressure of the water coming out of the sluice gates, the floodgates. Mm -hmm. That hole is in a region of 120 meters deep. And, and that's been gouged out of solid basalt rock. Gee, God. And what, what the worry is is that it's undercutting towards the foundation now of the dam. So to preempt any problems in the future, we've got some money from somewhere, I don't know where, because people aren't giving money to Zimbabwe. And um, they started this huge project to rehabilitate what is known as the spilling pool below the dam wall. I have heard a story, though, that with the lake coming up, that they've actually halted progress on that project. Right. I can't tell you for sure right now. Hmm. Okay, well, as long as it's not going to collapse, like some skeptics say it might, uh, I think that's the most important part. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I, I believe it's all bar talk. I really yeah. Steve, uh, you know, in, uh, in our parts of the world, we're noticing uh, sort of environmental changes, obviously closer to cities, et cetera, where, um, you know, the, the sort of beaches are looking cleaner or water in the harbours is looking clearer. Have you noticed, I mean, I can't imagine there would be, but have you noticed any, any differences in your world uh, since the world's gone to sleep? 
interesting you bring that up um, because I've been seeing on on various internet and WhatsApps and so on photos from all over the world explaining exactly what you say. Waterways clearing up, uh, smog disappearing from cities and so on. We're blessed where we live here. We are in paradise. And yeah. We do not have any form of pollution whatsoever, be it water, be it air. We just don't have it. We, we're very lucky we live in a pristine environment. However, um, you know, when, when times are good um, and we have the normal sort of influx of tourists, we have airplanes flying overhead, landing at a nearby airstrip, bringing in tourists. Hmm. That stopped. Yeah. Or flight stopped. And it's a sort of an eerie feeling not hearing the airplanes. Yeah. And also speedboats and cruiser boats, these uh, gym palaces, which we call houseboats, where mm. people hire and go onto these boats. Some of them sleep up to 20 people, some half a dozen people. And on a, on a public holiday, say like Easter's just gone by, and Easter's one of the most popular holidays to have on the lake. Yeah. We would count 30 of these big cruiser kinds. There's not one. Gee, not really? one. Not one speedboat. Nothing. And if you hear a speedboat, it's probably the anti-poaching unit or a police boat if they find petrol. And that's on the horizon kind of thing. It's, it's quite amazing. It is deathly quiet. But you know, we love it. Yeah. It's hippos, fish eagles, and so on. No, totally, eh? No, it must be lovely. Uh, that's why I thought I thought of you immediately after this thing happened. But like I say, that the lake is uh, even during in season and busy time such an expansive place with just so many areas that uh, it it has to be one of the most uncrowded um, and unique destinations around at the moment. Mainly, I think. Zimbabwe's taken a bit of a hammering in uh, tourism uh, over the years and access to certain parts of the lake are more challenging. And, and, and those have led to, I think, you know, if I think back to sort of maybe the 80s when, when we used to go to the lake as a family and, and, and Kariba town was a hustle and bustle of boats and people. And then, you know, all these operational islands, Spurwing, Fothergill, Boomy Hills, uh, Tashinga is where we used to stay. And, and, you know, yeah, look, it wasn't busy, but there were people around. And, um, you know, now really we've got yourself and Boomy in that area, uh, operational. Uh, I think, uh, am I right in saying that Spurwing and Fothergill are, are now closed, Steve? Um, well, basically we're all closed, actually. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, I was chatting to the general manager of Bruno Hills on the phone the other day, and he says he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's twiddling his thumbs. He's never had it like this. It's just absolutely dead. But we're all in the same boat. There are zero tourists, yeah. even locals, because the locals of Barbie population are locked out just as much. But just to go back to your story about um, the boats on, on, on Lake Treba, as you quite correctly said, way back in the 80s, in the heyday, Kariba was a bustling place. And although there was a hive of activity at Kariba Town, which is the hub, where all the boats would be taking off and could see 30 or 40 houseboats chugging off, they all then sort of disappear into the little bays and creeks. And so you're not on each other's doorsteps. Yeah. And even though you're in a houseboat, you could be well hidden. You don't see another boat. Even in those heydays. Yeah. No, totally. And what, what, what is, I mean, if you, if you, if you go to Spurwing or Fothergill now, because we used to go to those as a family and, and, uh, you know, what happens when you step, step onto those islands now? What do you see? Well, the wildlife <laughs> is getting so used to the, the, the lack of boats and vehicles and people that the wildlife is, I wouldn't like to use the word encroach, but are, are free freely coming into the camps. It's quite a sudden. Yeah. We've got a whole lot of bushfuck on the island and Kudu are coming back onto the island. We still joined to the mainland, by the way, because the lake was so low. Yes. So a lot of animals coming on. Yeah. I think when the when the lake does fill, of course, we'll be cut off from the mainland. Yeah. But we have resident bushfuck, I think you might remember that. Yeah. Um, and resident hippo and so on. 
Yeah, I know the kids love those bush buck, eh? Yeah, the camps do have their own little sort of groups of animals which frequent. Yeah. And, Steve, I know that... uh, uh, you started sort of your career as a ranger in the early 70s, if I did my homework correctly, because I was only a year old when you started your career. Um, and then, uh, you know, you you obviously, you, you had the benefit of learning uh, the ropes under what was then the Rhodesian National Parks. Uh, can you just tell me how you got all started in, in, in becoming a game ranger? Uh yeah, I, I I think I need to pay homage to my mother and father, really, because they were dead, dead keen on wildlife. And as a small child, I remember being packed into the vehicle with our sleeping bags and tents and food, and off we'd go during the school holidays or a long weekend. And Wanky National Park was my parents' favorite place. So we used to go. That was in those days with the vehicles we had. In that time, it was a two-day trip. We used to camp on the way up to Wankies because I was brought up in a a little town in the middle of Zimbabwe called uh, Gueru. Used to be called Guelo. Um, And we'd pack up the car and head off and camp on the way there at a place called the Bendizi River. And I remember very distinctly, vivid in my mind, those days getting up very early, keen to get going and putting the fire, putting a kettle on the fire, making tea for the folks to wake them up with tea <laughs> and hearing the birds and the animals in those days. It's now surrounded by people, but in those days it was wild. The dead bees were about just fantastic. Oh, anyway, Wank was the place. And my mom was the one that sort of really opened my eyes and senses to wild. She always used to hug our sleeping bag. They smell. Now that's wanking from the last holiday. <laughs> it's true. Those sleeping so, bags do have a very distinct smell, though. Yeah, absolutely. And we would get into the park and we would smell elephant dung and buffalo dung. <laughs> the eyes peeled. And I remember the funny thing was one of is we would approach Wanky National Park and we're about maybe 50 kilometers away and we come across our first roadside with an elephant on it. Danger, beware, elephant. And as kids, we didn't realize. We just thought, okay, that's where the elephant started from there on this. And so as soon as we saw the elephant sign, we were glued to the glass. My brother on the one side and myself on the other looking for elephant. <laughs> and uh, it, it was always a, a funny thing that I remember. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. Uh, I, I, the wild I've started way back then. Yeah, how fortunate. I suppose that's what you need. You need uh, somebody to introduce you to it and then, and then off you go. Um, Stephen, then, Absolutely. like, when you finish, um, yeah, sorry, carry on, sorry. Steve. Sorry, mate. I was just saying that because of that, all I wanted to do was join national parks. Uh, when we would go camping in Wanker National Park, if I saw a, a game ranger in uniform, I used to just in awe, you know, like I had just seen the king or something. It was just amazing. And all I wanted to do was that. I remember being at school and writing essays. All my essays were about national parks, nothing else, all about birds. Because I started bird collecting at a young age. My dad introduced me because he used to breed bunnies and canaries. And so I started doing birds. But I preferred the wild birds. Uh, I'm not very proud of the fact that I used to cage birds, but it got my interest going. Um, yeah. And so all I wanted to do was join national parks. And and I was very, very fortunate to be accepted after I'd left school as the youngest uh, candidate ever to join national parks. And uh, that was a thrill. Indeed, I, I, had, I had landed where I wanted to be in national parks. Yeah, where was that first spot uh, that you, you got assigned to, Steve? Well, initially it was head office in, in Harare, but that was just to get our uniforms and to make sure we had driver's licenses and, and so on. And then they shipped us off to my first station was Victoria Fall. Uh-huh. I, mean, I couldn't have, I couldn't have asked for a better place. Yeah. And, um, and just out of interest, I, I, a 
at a later stage in my career, I went back to the course. So I started off as a 16, 17-year-old cadet ranger, and I went back as the boss <laughs> of the whole of the Victoria Falls environment. So it, it, was, it really holds a special place in my heart, Victoria Falls. Yeah, I mean, you guys are still, have you guys still got a home there, Steve? No, no, we never did. We, we no. went to the house when we, when, when tourism did a bungee jump in Zimbabwe, when my garden stole all the farms and tourism did a plunge. Yeah. Um, we, we moved to Victoria because our kids also were due to go to school. And, uh, so we moved there and we, we rented a place. We've never owned a place there. Okay. But we love, Love it, yeah. yeah, I mean, we were there last year, and um, uh, we went as a family. We, we was we was we were staying in uh, with the parkers across across the river, but we went we went to Vic Falls Zimsad uh, for a day, and I have to say, it was yeah. I mean, I was really impressed the way that they've done it uh, there at the moment. It's still it's a really nice facility they've done on the Zimsad. I was I was as I say I was, I was quite impressed. Um, <laughs> I know in also obviously in the, in the, in the days the great days of of you know those 80s uh those 70s and 80s uh, uh where the national parks were so well managed and still to this day I think uh Zimbabwean game rangers are respected in across southern and eastern Africa they seem to be you know some of the best around um what were the highlights of your career, uh, you know, uh, going from Vic Falls? And, 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 and I know you, you managed a couple of other parks, if you can you know, touch on that. Um, well, as a cadet, we were posted rapidly around. So we did six months to nine months at a station. And the idea there was to move us around to get different experiences. And I can honestly say that I probably was lucky enough to work under some of the best wildlife guys in the world. Phenomenal people. And uh, I learned so much from them and uh, and respect them most, most highly. So I, I think I probably went to 13 different national parks. But as you get higher up in the ranks, so you spend longer and longer. Yeah. And then eventually I was made a senior ranger and then a warden. And uh, my first warden post was Victoria Falls, so I went back there as the boss. And when I eventually left the department, I left as a provincial warden in charge of the province. And I basically fulfilled my career. And uh, it was only politics, in fact, that made me leave. I would have still been there. I would have been the one to switch off the lights, I can assure you. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, you know, just politics have just got a bit nasty because I got heavily involved with the anti-poaching and the rhino wars and that started to get a bit smelly as yeah. far as involvement, high-ranking people, government officials and so on. Yeah, Steve, I, I, I think you, you managed to spend a, a night, uh, you spent some time in jail, didn't you? Yes, I, I think we, we all joking to say if you want to be a true Zimbabwe, you have to have some of spent some time in jail. Um, <laughs> I just spend some time in jail. But, uh, you yeah. know, it's the good times and the good places that are more indelible in my brain about my career at National Park. <laughs> For sure. National Park on 18 years. And, uh, yeah. And I was very lucky to be stationed at fantastic places. Matusa Donna was another. Yeah. That's right there on my horse. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's the kind of area that I, I got to know a bit as a youngster because my dad used to take us camping into Shinga. And I think you were, we kind of worked out that you may well have been the park warden when, when I came there. Um, but yeah, what a stunning area for wildlife. And I, you know, so, so much opportunity for game to thrive in that area. It's got everything. Uh, how is the wildlife doing this, dude? Well, let me just start off by saying the Matusa Donna is to, to, to coin a cliche and a phrase, which they'd like to do, it really is a hidden gem. The Matusa Donna and Chisurera National Parks yeah. are remote, they're remote, they're rugged, they're difficult to get to, but once you're there, you're in paradise. Yeah. Phenomenal surroundings, lovely vistas, and great wildlife. But the other side of that, story 
is that because they are difficult to get to and around, policing them was difficult. And Zimbabwe, as you know, has gone through some economic turmoil. And so there was not much funding going through down to the grassroots to the National Parks Rangers. They weren't being able to get out and do their work. And we, we ended up losing a lot of our rhino. In fact, as we speak now, we've lost all our rhino. Wow. Every rhino was poached out of the Matusadana. And sadly, when we started Masango, my wife Wendy and I, the biggest draw card really was the fact that we had black rhino. And um, that used to be our friend in the friend. We would take people out and track rhino on foot. And uh, there's nothing more exciting than tracking a wild black rhino, I can assure you. Oh, I know. I've been with you. You know, we, we did that tracking the one day and uh, I so enjoyed it. And um, we saw a lot of other stuff, and, and we'll get on. You know, I'll talk about the, the, the some of the other stuff we found on the on the ground. But back to the rhino, I think you know you were concerned that there were a demise in the numbers at that yeah, stage. We, we embarked on a, a huge project called Operation Stronghold um, in the late eighties, early nineties, to try and save the rhino. And the Matusadana was designated as one of the IPZ, the Intensive, Intensive Protection Zone. And so rhino were brought in and then they were policed and they were also dehorned. But we even had poachers shooting rhino that had been dehorned and they took the ears. Mm. We, we let it be later that they used the ears as proof that they had shot the rhino, but there were no horns. Gee, God. So they were paid a certain amount of money for having done that. Oh. <laughs> What a tragedy. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, how would you try and get Rhino back into that area, Steve? I mean, what would be a plan? I mean, uh, obviously you've got to sort out the poaching first, but where would you get Rhino from and how, how would you go about it? Uh, well, not to mention the places because it's sort of secret. There are two other places in Zimbabwe that are doing exceptionally well oh, cool. with uh, Rhino and they're breeding up a great nucleus. So, there's already a gene pool and nucleus that we can extract from to build up the population again in the park. When the time comes, yeah. when we have rule of law yeah. and we have good judiciary and so on, mm. when that's all in place, mm. then it's an ideal time to bring in some novels. Yeah. We do have another saving grace, and that is um, Africa Parks have recently signed uh, an agreement with the Department of National Parks and are taking over the Matusadana National Park. They've worked right through Africa in various countries. They adopt a particular national park and then they pump in money and logistics and personnel and what have you to get them that particular chosen park back onto its feet. So we are fortunate that the Matusadana has been the chosen park for Africa parks to come into. The agreement has been signed. Everything is on the go. And then, of course, this lockdown came. So um, it's been put on hold at the moment. But they will be jacking up the roads, the bridges, the culverts, uh, the staff housing. But a very, very important aspect of for the future of wildlife in the park is to involve the peripheral communities, mm. all of the villages live on the periphery of the park. They have to be together yeah. with the ideas of the park. Otherwise, you fail. If you don't have the community on your side, your wildlife is doomed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They have to feel the impact too. How is that community doing down, down the drag there, Steve? Well, I, I can't say with the lockdown and everything, um, but... You know, we, we as at Masango support them. We've built schools, uh, we've built clinics, we've built church, we put in boreholes to pump water for them and so on. And we, we have put a whole lot of HIV, um, orphaned children right through to university. Sadly, once they got their degrees, they left the country. And yeah. the reverse of what I want. And I want them to come back and work for the community that I've been 
Yeah. And that, that's how we've been involved with the community. We get on very, very well. Uh, in fact, just out of humor, the, the chief, chief Mola, he named his last born child after me. That was quite a joke. <laughs> Gee, that's fantastic. That's a real sign of respect, eh? Gee whiz. That's yeah, awesome. That was it. I mean, we were all laughing, but in fact, it does mean a lot to us. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing, eh? Steve, I, I remember when we were um, walking in the bush, tracking rhino, um, we came across a mound and and there was sort of a junction. Uh, junction. You, you noticed that the landscape had changed slightly and you dug into what seemed like just a different rock formation and started pulling out what I think you termed as Triassic era bits of uh, of, di- of of a type of dinosaur. Um, yeah, what's uh, can you just tell me a little bit more about uh, your area and what you found there? Okay, it, um, it, it started off with uh, one of the walks that we were conducting, and uh, I came across um, a whole lot of early Stone Age tools in almost in a pile, spread over about half of a tennis court kind of size, mm. and. Um, and it really was interesting. So I, I wrote off, uh, wrote a paper on it and it was picked up by the Smithsonian Institute in the States. And they flew out one of the specialists involved in archaeology who camped with us for 10 days and was then registering the, the site, uh, measuring it and photographing it and so on. And she was showing me how they made the early Stone Age tools and Whilst we were there one day, I sort of wandered off on the edge of it and picked up what to me was obviously a fossil. It was um, a bone that had turned stone. And um, I took it to her and go there and she said, yes, that's definitely a fossil. And promptly threw it away. And I said, why did you throw it away? See, I'm an archaeologist, I'm not a paleontologist, I'm not interested in fossils. So I said, well, excuse me if I just <laughs> scratched around. So, I wandered off and, uh, and, and found what was obviously dinosaur teeth. And that really opened my eyes. Yeah. So, came home, if that's the word, on fossils. And as you quite clearly say, when we went on a walk with you, um, I, I know the kind of, uh, the rock formation of stratigraphy where these fossil gods be found. And, and I have subsequently now located six different fossil sites. And we invited some specialist paleontologists from the London Natural History Museum and from Bits University in South Africa and from America. And we mounted a scientific expedition uh, by hiring one of the gin palaces, the houseboats. And uh, I think we were nine in all, and we we went scratching around, looking at a previous fossil site which had been known about and written about uh, because Zimbabwe actually has a unique dinosaur known as Volconodon caribiensis, named after Kariba, where it just found on one of the islands. So we did a bit of a scratch around there. We found a vertebra there, and then I introduced them to my six sites, and we we picked up this Phytosaur jaw. Um, or in fact, I had already had it in my collection. And they then said to me that this was the first such uh, specimen uh, from Africa, south of the Sahara, never been recorded before. So they were very, very excited with that. Then I, I then smuggled them to England. <laughs> Literally break, breaking the law um, because I needed to have them identified. And I met with a, a lady who was at the Natural History Museum, who was the lead paleontologist, Dr. Angela Milner. Uh, we have since then become very good friends. And she also is a birder. She loves birding. So we hit it off very well. But she knew her stuff. She really knew her stuff that she was identified. She was describing to me the area. She'd never even been to Zimbabwe. And she was describing the area where I'd found this stuff. It must have been so-and-so, and it looked like this. And anyway, she's the first person to have identified it as a fighter saw. 
And she said, when you find a skull or a hip, I'll be on the next plane out of London. Yeah. And then sadly, she retired. And the, the monies allocated to the Natural History Museum in England was severely cut. And so when we managed to get this expedition together with, um, with the, the, the guy that had taken over from Angela, um, he managed to scoop some money together from some donors and came out. And they were over the moon with what they found here. Absolutely. There's been a scientific paper written. It's just recently been published. And, um, yeah, so it's very, very, very exciting. And all by smuggling bones out of the country. How did you manage to do that? <laughs> that in itself is quite a funny story. Um, when I passed through the, the security x-ray section and my briefcase went through, I was hauled up by the security and opened the briefcase and they said, what are those? And they pointed straight to the fossil. Now, I really, really got quite nervous because I could go straight to jail, you know. So anyway, I just said to her, I just did some quick thinking. And I said, I, I'm very, very scared of flying. So I went to see the witch doctor, the Nanga, to ask him for some muti, some medicine, to help me with my nervous flying. And these are my lucky stones that he gave me. So she said, ah, oh, really? Okay, you can pass. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I managed to get through security with some quick thinking. Yeah, well as soon done. As I mentioned the Nanga, and that started no. that whole mission of, of of the Natural History Museum being able to get that insight. So well done on that, smugglers for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Steve, you... they 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 kept them for a while. Yeah, and and then they catalogued them, identified them, labelled them, sealed them in the lovely bubble packet, and then sent them back to me registered mail. So I've got them back here. And I've subsequently uh, been given a license to collect and to keep. Um, so I'm very happy about that. I think this is all as a result of those specialists coming out and involving, of course, Natural History Museum paleontologists from Zimbabwe. They were with us too on the house, and they gave me the, the permit to collect and to keep. Oh, brilliant. So that's really I mean, you've got that whole uh, museum at Masango. How, how, is it still there, Steve? Absolutely. You know, um, when when we had guests and we go out on walks, every single day one is learning and uh, and constantly picking up stuff. Uh, Wendy and I have, have got a nice little museum going there now. Yeah. Lots of little interesting artifacts that we pick up on walks. And then, of course, tied in with it is a small little gift shop that we did. My daughter, Robin, runs. Very nice. Wow, that's and Steve, uh, you know, you 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 obviously apart from your time in Zimbabwe, you you took a gap and did some time in Kenya. Uh, well, what did you do up there uh, again? If you can just tell us where you worked again. Okay, um, this was also a direct result of the the farm invasions and tourism dropped off the cliff for Zimbabwe. And we weren't getting any tourists into our camp at Masango. Uh, we weren't making money and I had quite a large staff to still maintain. So, um, through Classic Safari Camps of Africa, which I'm a founding member of, we, we were offered a job by Ari Grammaticus, who's the real doyen of tourism up in Kenya. And he runs a group called the Governors Group. Sadly, he's passed away. But he offered me a job and asked me to bring the Zimbabwean aspect of guiding to the Kenyan guys and worked in Kenya at, at Governor's Group, which was an eye-opener for me because they have phenomenal wildlife there, absolutely phenomenal. We always in Zimbabwe, we always considered ourselves to be the best guys and we have the best wildlife and so on. But I must tell you that if you're a first-time traveler to Africa, to want to see wildlife, without doubt, Kenya, the Maasai Mara is a, is a must. It's a first prize. There's animals in every square inch. There's animals and all the, the cats, you know. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. So I really had a good time there. 
Yeah, I've yet to see that area. I mean, we've got plants up there and I've been invited. I just haven't gone. I'd, I'd love to see it. Uh, I once tried, ran out of money, sat at the gates of Ngorogoro Kato, but had no money and had to go back and find work elsewhere. But one fine day, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been approached by many guests saying, of all the things that you would like to do in Africa, what would you say is the best? And I said, if you are going to do a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Africa to see animals. The migration in Kenya or northern Tanzania in the Serengeti is a, is a must. Yeah. And then, of course, gorillas and the chimpanzee. Yeah, yeah. So those are two definites. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, Steve, um, while you were there, you 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 helped train up uh, some of the Maasai guys uh, and you – and you got into, uh, I think you were involved with some medical training as well as uh, some guarding. Um, and you made a discovery, if I remember correctly, you told me a story of how the Maasai were, you couldn't, your, your line sightings and the Maasai kit was uh, some issue. You can just elaborate on that story again. Yes, um, that was an, an interesting uh, story and an eye-opener for me. When when I got to to the governance group, I asked Ari Grammaticus what my mandate was. And he said, I want you to introduce walking safaris, and but I, I want you to take one of our local Maasai warriors with you. The tourists love having these guys dressed in all their regalia with those big uh, red robes, which they call a shuka, and their spears and, and their shields and so on. So it's all part of the, the hype of going on a walk in the African bush with a warrior and so on. Um, and it was fine. And he would teach me about edible plants and grasses and so on and insects. And I would teach him stuff that I knew. And so we, we got on very, very well. In fact, I also taught him how to drive because he didn't know how to drive. And um, anyway, what, what I noticed was that when we were tracking lion, for example, because there's lions everywhere in the Masamara. So picking up a pile of lion in the morning to track is pretty easy. But I noticed that every time we got to where the lions would be, they would run and disappear down the valley and up the hill on the other side and look at us at a distance, sometimes half a kilometer away or something. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't understand why. They were so nervous. Yet when we were in a vehicle, you could get within one inch of them, you know, and they just lie around. And then I was very fortunate one day to be sitting in a vehicle with some guests in amongst a huge pride of lions, about 20 lions. And we were just watching them lying around as lions do, cubs playing. And then all of a sudden, the lion's ears pricked up. And they sat up and they all stared off into the horizon. And I said to my guests, wrongly, <laughs> I'm happy to admit, I said, these lions have spotted something. They're probably going to hunt now. So just get ready, get your cameras ready and so on. But the complete reverse happened is they all snuck off into the bush. <laughs> and uh, when I looked with my binoculars on the horizon, here was a, a Maasai warrior coming along on his bloody bicycle <laughs> dressed with chukka. And it dawned on me then, at that moment, that that is what the lions were scared of. They have this inbuilt fear of the Maasai warriors with their red chukas because for a Maasai warrior to be proclaimed a warrior, which is known as a, a Moran, and for him, to enable him to marry... He needs to kill a lion with a spear, barehanded with a spear, or get involved with killing a lion on a lion hunt. And and over the, I would say, centuries, it's been inbred with lions to fear the Maasai in their red sugars. So the next time we went on a walk, I just said, right, stand by. And I gave him a green shirt and khaki trousers, and I said, just wear this today. I want to try an experiment. <laughs> well, it changed the whole aspect of tracking lines, let me tell you. When we tracked them without the sugar, 
I got to within 10 feet of the lines and they charged us. The whole bloody lot charged us. Gee, God. <laughs> it's only because incredible. we stood our ground and shouted and the lions stopped and then they, they stuck back into the bush. But it proved my point that Gee. with the red shooter and the spears and the, and the shields, you can't get anywhere near those lions. But it was a hell of an eye-opener. Yeah. Steve, that, that yeah, that, that's, uh, I know you made a big difference there. And the other part was just uh, preparing your team for medical emergencies. Um, I know your, your time in Kenya ended with uh, Wendy pretty much flying up to Kenya and being advised to bring a, and whatever you hold uh, somebody's ashes in, I think it's called an urn, isn't it? Um, and you had you were in a bad way. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, that that was quite a shocking experience. Um, having done a morning walk and then another afternoon walk, we came home late one one day, one evening, uh, because even Kenyan vehicles break down, <laughs> and uh, I had to sort of drive very slowly across the plains with no lights. Got into camp at about eight o'clock, quarter to eight, something like that, with a honeymoon couple that I'd taken on a walk. And, um, the, the Ascaris, which are your, your Maasai guards that roam around the camp keeping tourists safe, came running up to me in the car park and said, be careful. One of them is a, a kiboko, a hippo, uh, running amok in the camp. There are two males that had been fighting all day, all afternoon. And I asked, well, where are they now? And he said, they've, they've gone right up to the top end of the camp. So I said, quickly take my torch here. Go and take these guests to their room and we'll have a quick shower before dinner. But the rest of my guests were all sitting around the fire waiting for us to return so we could start dinner. And anyway, to cut a long story short, I was walking to my room, which was the closest room to the dining room. And I walked straight into a hippo within a meter or so and it was one of the males that had come running back down the path anyway when he saw me he just went for me and i was with the the maasai tracker and we both turned and ran and of course uh, the maasai are quite world famous for the way they can run <laughs> and not so me and uh, the hippo got hold of me and bit me and mauled me pretty badly and i eventually went unconscious I was stuck in its mouth with my head and shoulders and my legs sticking out with my backside down its mouth. And it crushed me and disemboweled me and broke a few ribs and things and uh, ran with me down the path. Luckily, I did become unconscious, actually, because um, I, I couldn't breathe. Anyway, I woke up somewhere in the car park with all the staff surrounding me trying to pick me up. Anyway... Um, I'm cutting the story short because it's, it's a long-winded one, but they threw me into the back of the Land Rover, even though I was shouting in my best Swahili to put me down. Um, the more I screamed, the more they ran with me like a battering ram and threw me into the back of the Land Rover and, um, and took me around to the main camp uh, over very, very rough terrain, what we call square wheel country. <laughs> the elephant foot in the mud have created these huge potholes. Yeah. And so they, they hit that at bloody about 80 k's an hour, and I was being bounced around. Oh, Luckily, gosh. I had taught the guy to drive, as I said earlier when we were talking about the walks, and I had taught him how to drive. So that was rather a miracle that he was around to be able to drive me to the next camp. And you, you mentioned earlier just now in your chatting about having trained the medical staff. They, they had a, a medical guy which they called Daktari, and I think that's Swahili for a doctor. But his sole position in his clinic was disciplines for headaches and plasters for scratches. So because I was going to be doing walking, I, I implored with um, Ari and his wife, Romy, and Romy is a, a doctor, that we would need a lot more equipment if we were going to do the walking. And not only that, you, you could, there could be a vehicle accident, there could be an aircraft crash, something. We would need to have a lot more significant uh, medical supplies available. And 
and I give her juice, Romy jumped around and sent a whole lot of stuff, which included morphine and included drips and bandages and all sorts of things that one would need in a trauma situation. Mm. I had been trained in trauma medicine in the army in, in the Rhodesian Bush War, so I used that experience to train their guide, their doctari, how to give drips and and so on. And that saved my life because that night I was on the slab in the clerk. He was able to to put some drips into me. Amazing. And I managed to fly through to Nairobi that night and uh, went into into the theatre operating where the guy worked on me from about 10 at night to about 3 in the morning. But they had tried to phone my wife Wendy to say that I was probably going to die. and uh, But the phones weren't working too well. And so they were unable to get Wendy. And they only managed to get her in the morning when I had now pulled through. So the news that Wendy received was good news that I was alive. The bad news that, that I was mauled. And so she came up to Kenya uh, to be with me with the, with our young children. Amazing. Yeah, that's a, that is a amazing that you survived that because you've shown me the wounds and, uh, yeah, you certainly earned your own life there though by those good men getting taught by you. So it's a really complete story. That's dude. Absolutely. Um, the miracles that happened that day are, they keep reminding me about miracles. It's just phenomenal what happened. You know, that A, I taught the guy to drive. He was able to drive me there. Mm. Uh, that uh, we had radios because I had insisted on radios, little handhold radios, little Motorola walkie-talkie things because mm. when I went on a walk, I wanted to be able to talk to someone in mm. case something happened. So those were working. The fact that we had the medical supplies, the fact that I taught him how to use them. Um, and another miracle was that there was an aircraft at Governor's Airstrip mm. because that aircraft normally would overnight at Lake Victoria at one of the governor's other camps called Mufangano. Mm. But um, I had asked permission to keep the plane. So the following morning, we were going to do a flight to go and look at the migration from the air with, with an aeroplane. So it was going to be an experimental flight the next morning. So the plane was on the ground. And the fact that the pilot was a Muslim, he didn't drink alcohol. So he hadn't got stuck into the drinks that that night. Wow. He was available to back to and another miracle really we had a good friend uh, a good friend of ours called Colin Walensky who was he's a Zimbabwean guide and he was guiding the Big Cat Diary group yeah you've heard of the Big Cat Diary BBC program so he was their guide and he was in camp when this all happened and he had also been trained in the in the war bush war and so he organized all the vehicles to light up the airstrip. He went and took out the seats out of the airplane to make a place for me to lie on the ground. Uh, he was good, very, very good. He got everything going. You know, and quick in a flash. Mm. So, yeah, they were all little miraculous things that happened. Yeah, for sure. Steve, um, uh, coronavirus, an amazing thing. If I think about... Uh, you know, if, if I, you know, I was looking at the World Health Organization's uh, malaria reports in 2018, 228 million cases uh, in the year that they recorded, 405,000 deaths, and uh, malaria has sort of been funded in 2018 uh, to, you know, to the tune of 2.7 billion US dollars. And interestingly enough, there is a concern that with COVID-19, these numbers are going to double. The, the flip side of it that, that uh, is, is so interesting is that to date, I think there's uh, 2,790,000 cases and 195,000 deaths. And the UN is estimating a spend of a trillion US dollars, uh, which is over 350 times more than the cost of malaria. Uh, it's a weird world we live in. Uh, how have you managed malaria in your world and, 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 and what do you think of that compared to corona, you know? Yeah, that poses a, another interesting question. The, 
the fact that you gave me those statistics, I wasn't sure if you were talking about the deaths or the amount of money that you were creating. Yeah. The amount of money that's being spent on Corona is very simply put because it's the first world that's being hammered hard at the moment. Yeah. So they, they're quick to put the money in there. Malaria uh, attacks mainly third world countries, uh, most of Africa and India, and they're a lot more hesitant to put that kind of money in, I would say, in a nutshell. That's one answer. Yeah. Um, but we... For example, on this coronavirus issue, when we knew that the president here was going to give a speech, uh, it was inevitable that he was going to call for a lockdown um, because the world was locking down and, and he would have to follow suit, I'm sure. So I called a meeting with our staff, uh, the staff that I had in camp at the time. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to impose our own lockdown. So this was like six days before the president spoke. And I imposed our own lockdown mm -hmm. and the staff that were out, the staff that were out on time off or leave or sick or whatever, I, I have forbidden them to come back to camp. So they're in their own little lockdown back home and our guys are stuck in camp. I've said, I don't want anybody to move at all. And that's been the status quo. Now we're in our second lockdown. Um, the guys are getting restless, but, you know, as I said earlier, we live in paradise here, and I let them go fishing every day and so on. Steve, um, Misango, what an awesome spot. I know, uh, you know, we've had we, – we were so lucky as a family to go there, and when we were there, we pretty much did all the things that Misango does, and, and uh, you know, from the, the bird watching, the game walks – the river cruises, the sundowners, the fishing, you know, um, and just really enjoying that stunning island. And, and one of the cool things that I love about Masango is, and now with the water rising getting equally exciting again, is that on the dinner side of the island, you kind of look over that lovely expanse of water towards Tashinga and you can watch uh, the sunrise and the moonrise, which is absolutely stunning. I remember us having dinner under the moon. It was just beautiful and empty. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, looking towards Bumi, uh, you've got the sunset and, uh, uh so guests these days are those guys that are prepared to put in a little bit of effort and acts from, you know, from a travel perspective because, you know, or pay a little bit more to get there because the, the private flights, uh, to Masango Island are probably what most sensible out of Vic Falls and Lake Kariba. Otherwise, there are boat transfers across to the lake. Um, how, how are you feeling about this year? I mean, obviously, we are staring down COVID-19. It's going to, we all know that the writings of the world is going to be a very difficult uh, year, if not hardly a year at all. And then next year, we're going to start uh, opening up and, 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 and looking at, um, you know, travel again. Uh, I know from a sustainability point of view, there's probably uh, nobody better than yourself and Wendy that can, can keep things sustainable on the island. Um, how are you feeling about the long-term projection? Yeah, you just said looking down at COVID-19. The first image that came to my mind was looking down at the barrels of a double, double barrel <laughs> shotgun. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that this COVID-19 is going to be a big wake-up call, not for the, not for us and the small camps around here, but for the entire world. Yeah. I, I believe our way of life is going to change forever. Um, but anyway, I, I don't mean to be a doom and gloom person. And yeah. I do know that, uh, same as us, you know, people that are having this lockdown feeling, wanting to get out, I, I feel for the people in the cities. Yeah. They, they must be wanting to get out. So that's going to be our target market. It's going to be initially, we'll be to try and get some. Zimbabweans and maybe South Africans to come in and enjoy this bit of paradise. As soon as the lockdown's over, I think there's going to be, I hope to goodness, there's going to be a flood of people. Of course, there is the issue of all the lost jobs and companies that are going bust, and therefore there's not going to be a lot of money around. Mm. But I hope and pray that they are wanting to get out. And so let's say that they will get those people. I think in about a year or so's time, we'll probably then be facing more of the international travelers when the airlines start going again. 
goodness knows when they will start. But once they get going, then tourism will open up again, I'm sure. Yeah, we're all going to be reliant on those on those major characters to get uh, carriers to to start transporting uh, international guests. Um, but Steve, thanks so much for the chat. Eh? Uh, I really appreciated it. It's very interesting. I knew it would be, um, and I'm I'm hoping that uh, we'll we'll be able to chat again soon. And um, look forward to seeing you guys again on Lake Kariba when the day comes. If not, uh, here in Dirts for in Dava for sure. And uh, yeah, lots of love to Wendy and the family, and I and I hope you guys have a have a safe and enjoyable time out there. Thank you, thank you, Paul. That's great. Thanks for thinking of us, and it was great chatting to you. And uh, I'm still just reveling in this view that I'm looking at. There. It's just phenomenal. We're very blessed to be here, and uh, we're looking forward to sharing this with you again in the not too distant future. I certainly hope that you do make the effort to come and see us. And we'll do everything in our our, uh, our ability to make sure that it's a comfortable and easy and cheap ride to get here. Yeah, well, I, you know, you know how much I love my Land Cruiser. So a little rough ride out the back into the area too is something that I certainly would be up for. So yeah, as soon as this world opens up, I think it's fun time again. <laughs> All okay. right, no, thank, thanks so much. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Steve. Cheers. Well, thanks so much for listening. Um, if any of you are interested in ever doing a safari with Steve and Wendy, um, it certainly will be something to remember, and I will leave you their web address in the show notes, and feel free to contact them. Take care.